This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Every single ingredient, every single process, Every single cleaner, everything, even the machinery, it all has to be pre-approved by the certification agency. And anything they find that isn't, poof, product is no longer organic, you're no longer organic. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn why it's important that your supplements are certified organic. We'll discuss the treatment of plantar fasciitis. We'll find out about the proper cooking methods for potato varieties. And lastly, we'll explore growing your own shade garden. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to The Tonic Magazine and a regular and valued guest on this show. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I am doing amazing today and hopefully everyone listening is as well. You're always so enthusiastic. So I know that the products at Purely Natural are certified organic. And we can say those words, certified organic, but, you know, there's meaning behind them, right? Oh, definitely. In Canada, the word organic, and I use that in air quotes, is somewhat protected under law. You can't just slap an organic label or an organic symbol on any food or drink without first meeting the Canadian organic standard. And it's a set, it's a rather large set, of federal government regulations that set out what ingredients you can use, what your label can say, and what manufacturing standards you have to meet. Once all those hurdles are met, then you can request inspection by a government-approved body, and if you pass, you can be Canadian organic. Fantastic. And that wasn't always the case, right? There was a little bit of a like a checkerboard way of regulating things, right? Where there were different sorts of bodies purporting to say that, you know, this was certified organic this way or that way. Is that right? Oh, yeah. In the beginning, organic was just a concept, essentially, in the 70s, 1960s. And then slowly as the market grew, you had different people saying, okay, well, this is organic, this isn't, until finally it became just so insane that the government stepped in and said, no, these are the rules for foods. And I think that's why people had confusion over it, right? Because for a while, there, organic meant different things depending on how you were certified. And, you know, in some, you know, people say, oh, you know, government's doing too much, there's too much regulation. But I think in this particular instance, the clarity that is provided, I think for the consumer is probably a good thing. Oh, definitely. And for manufacturers, it is a godsend. Clarity is everything. Okay. So in Canada, though, my understanding is 
that really organic or certified organic only pertains to food. Is that right? Correct. When they were drafting the legislation, our government and lawmakers only envisioned that it would be food. They didn't envision anything else such as supplements or cosmetics or even soap or pet food. So in Canada, it is so narrow, it only covers food for human consumption that can, you can put the Canadian organic symbol on or call Canadian organic. Ah, Okay, so, however, for those who are in the organic realm, though, you don't necessarily just certify Canadian organic, do you? No. What ended up happening is other countries saw the same thing we saw in Canada with the Wild West of organic as a word. So many other countries at the same time set in their own organic regimes. You have, for example, Korea, Japan, Europe has an entire system just for themselves. Uh, And then we have our neighbors to the south, the U.S. And in the U.S., lawmakers took a very wide view and they said, well, hold on. If you meet our ingredient standard and you meet our label standard and our manufacturing standard, we don't care what it is, it can be certified organic. So, for example, if you see certified organic cosmetics, they almost inevitably will have the USDA organic logo on them. Same with pet food and same with supplements. Okay, so I guess the issue is, I guess for Canadian companies who are looking beyond the Canadian market, it makes sense for them to be USDA organic because I presume there's a fair bit of profit to be had by selling to the Americans, right? Oh, definitely. But the kicker is for companies like me, because we are certified organic, um, but even though I'm buying crops grown organic in Canada, manufacturing in Canada, and selling in Canada, I'm still certified U.S. organic by an American certifier, but I can legally sell my product in Canada because... The system internationally is that if you have met the regulations in your local country and that country has an agreement with Canada reciprocating so that they can sell into Canada, Canada can sell into them, we can still use the same certifications. Is that in the context of free trade or are you talking specifically about the ability to sell organic products in a country? It starts with free trade, and then they have to negotiate a second subset just for organics. Oh, wow. Okay. So who's the negotiating body for Canada? How did that work? Is that an industry thing, or is that a governmental negotiation? Oh, it's completely governmental. It all has to do with Agriculture Canada. For example, with the U.S., it was Agriculture Canada and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, because both of them are the bodies in the respective countries that are responsible for organics. So when you say the word organics, I think everybody sort of thinks of it in the context of food. But in your experience, do the consumers actually even think about organic when it comes to supplements? If we had this question 10 or 15 years ago, I would, I would say no question, no. But as people have looked to get healthier and healthier and healthier and have seen the difference that organic makes in food, they've wanted it in other things. And it just makes sense, because if you buy a food or drink, it's for nutrition, it's sustenance and enjoyment. They satiate you, and with any luck, they they make you happy when you eat them. You should enjoy your food. You should. Supplements offer a different set of benefits. They're for your nutrition, yes, 
but they also help prevent and or treat disease. Foods, drinks, and supplements are all important, and we should look to have the cleanest of all of these. Now, with supplements, there's additional reasons to look for organic. Supplements, by their very nature, often require the use of concentrates. And it just makes sense if you think about it. It makes it so that manufacturers can put a therapeutic amount in a dose that's reasonable to take. For example, with cranberry, if you're taking cranberry as a supplement for UTIs, you can either take one concentrated capsule or 20 cranberry powdered capsules. 99.9% of people are going to go for the one capsule. I would think, yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) And this concentration was a great, great stride in therapeutics because now we can give people a therapeutic dose without choking them. (laughs) But here's the problem. If you start with material that isn't clean, not only are you concentrating the therapeutics, you're also concentrating the pesticide residue, the herbicide residue, and any other toxin. So you want to start out with the cleanest product available and concentrate that. And that's where organics come in because if something is grown and it's certified organic and manufactured using certified organic methods, You start with the cleanest and you end with the cleanest. Okay, that makes sense. If you're choosing to have organic products, be they food or or, or supplements, is that necessarily spinning off into other collateral benefits or is it are really are you just buying organic and therefore it's free of the pesticides, et cetera, et cetera? There's a lot more to it than that. Number one, people look and they say, oh, I don't want frankenfoods, I don't want genetically modified. Nothing that is organic certified can have any genetically modified material in it. It's not allowed under the regulations. It's just not possible. The other big thing is they check and confirm that nothing was made using waste or sewer sludge. And as a manufacturer and a consumer of this stuff, I can honestly say, I didn't know that was even possible. Yeah, I was going to say, is that really an issue? (laughs) Until I went down this road to be certified. So, like, I suppose when you say something like that, what you're suggesting is there are non-organics that are grown in sewer sludge? Is that what you're saying? Yep, yep, and processed using it. The whole thing is, we didn't even know that until we went down the road of becoming certified organic. It's like, whoa started looking at all our ingredients in a whole new light. (laughs) Maybe you know the answer, maybe you don't. Why would anybody use sewer sludge to grow, like, their food or supplement? I don't understand. Like, why? Simple cost. Okay, so what is it? Like, instead of being in soil, you're in waste? Is, Is that what it is, or? You can mix waste into the soil because sewer sludge actually has nutrients in it, as repulsive as that sounds. And when you're growing, you can grow. There are certain plants that will grow in almost anything. And the cheaper your inputs, the cheaper your outputs are. <sighs> I'm almost sorry I asked that question, Joel. All right. Um, <laughs> I don't want to know anymore. La, 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 la. Okay. What are the other benefits of, of buying organic products? Well, the biggest thing is quality. And what I mean by that is simple. Choosing a product where the manufacturer of that product has gone well over and above and beyond to make sure their product is quality from day one on. Every single ingredient, every single process, every single cleaner, everything, even the machinery, it all has to be a pre-approved. 
by the certification agency, and anything they find that isn't, poof, product is no longer organic, you're no longer organic. It's a rigorous process that takes a long time and a lot of effort, and they literally use microscopes to check everything. Anything that isn't on a list or a pre-approved, there's no wiggle room. It's yes or no, 100% of the time. I would presume that, you know, the process that you're talking about adds a layer of cost. So, you know, how's that reflected in the products? I mean, obviously you have to pass it on. You can't, you can't just eat those costs and compete with non-organics, right? Correct. There is an additional cost. There has to be. You're right. But the good news is, if we were having this conversation, as I said, 10 or 15 years ago, the cost was rather dramatic. Okay. Because the raw materials were more significantly more expensive. The processes were significantly more expensive. With the adaptation of organic, the costs have come down. Okay, that's good so news. <laughs> you're talking, in some things, only a 5 to 10% cost increase. Some ingredients, yes, it's significantly more, but those are rare. They truly are. So if I'm looking, if I'm comparing bottles, then the expectation should be then that organics shouldn't be much more than what, 10% more than a non-organic product? In that range. Okay, that's reasonable. So I understand that there are different levels to organic. Can you explain that? Yeah, there are four levels. The top tier is what's called 100% organic, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Every single ingredient in the product is organic, no questions. And they can actually use on the package the USDA organic logo. One step down from that is called certified organic, and that's probably 80 to 85% of all organic products. In these products, at least 95% of all the ingredients and processing aids have to be certified organic. And the other 5% must still be pre-approved by the organic agency and have to be listed in the organic regulations with no wiggle room. Okay. If it's not on the list, it's not allowed. And on top of that, they can still use the certified organic logo. One step down from that is what's called made with organic ingredients. And in these products, at least 70% of the ingredients and processing age are certified organic. And the non-organic ingredients have to be approved as well. But in this one, you can't use the certified organic logo. It's not allowed. The lowest level is what's called specific organic ingredients. And this category, you have products where less than 70% of the ingredients are organic. And you'll notice this on a label because you'll see, I'll pick something, say chickpeas. Yep. And what it'll say on the side of the package, made with organic chickpeas. There may be 40 other ingredients in it. I don't know why there would be, but there may be. Mm -hmm. But the chickpeas themselves are certified organic. And then I suppose in the processing, there's inorganic components that are put in, right? Correct. But with any product, it doesn't matter on any of the four, every ingredient still needs to be approved by the organic agency. Got it. Okay, so you're painting a picture here. I would imagine that getting to be certified organic is no easy feat. It isn't. It is truly mind-blowingly difficult for supplement manufacturers to become certified organic. For example, our company, we were already certified kosher, certified GMP by two different agencies, and it still took us over a year to be certified organic. Wow. Tons of paperwork, tons of audits, 
multiple inspections before they finally said okay, and then still every ingredient going forward has to be pre-approved. Every process, I get a new machine, we get a new cleaner. When I say cleaner, I mean literally a detergent we use to clean our machines. All that has to be pre-approved. And once a year minimum, we have someone who comes in here, we have no idea who they are ahead of time, it's completely random, and they get to spend a full day grilling us and looking over everything with a fine-tooth comb. Well, I suppose it's worth it then, isn't it? I mean, you've, you've done it, right? So you must see the merit in it. Why, at the end of the day, would you go through that process? We view it as a commitment, a commitment to quality both for our immediate clients, which are our stores and practitioners, as well as end consumers. We want to be able to say to consumers, this is the best product, period. It meets every criteria, and from its inception of being planted in the ground until it's in the bottle in your home, every step is known, traced, and we can verify everything about it to say it is the cleanest, purest, and the best. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you as always. My pleasure, sir. That was Joel Thuna. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the treatment of plantar fasciitis on The Tonic. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To fully benefit from probiotics, you need to ensure they're not destroyed by your stomach acids. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live, active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a variety of enteric-coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. Find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work with the MLB and NHL, she has extensive experience dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? Doing great, Jamie. How are you doing? Well, I may or may not have plantar fasciitis, which is what we're going to talk about today. So you are not only going to be interviewed today, you're going to be doing like an in-time diagnosis of Jamie's left foot. Okay? (laughs) Okay, I'm in. All right. For those who don't know, what is plantar fasciitis? So the plantar fascia is a thick connective tissue that goes along the sole of your foot. And it essentially attaches from the heel to the toes. And it's a, a shock absorber. So every step you take the plantar fascia is absorbing some of the force from your weight bearing. Okay, so if you have fasciitis, what does that mean? Does that mean, is, is this an overuse injury or is it a tear? Like, what, what is it? So it starts out as micro tears. It is an overuse injury. Starts out as little micro tears, and these can accumulate and progress so that you could have a full thickness tear. Very unusual to have a full thickness tear. 
but the micro tears in and of themselves probably feel like a full thickness tear to most people. Oh, yes, they do. So how would you know if you have plantar fasciitis? It's a pretty typical history. It's probably the most common cause of heel pain. So it's pain that's right on the uh, heel itself. When you touch it, it's terribly painful. Mm -hmm. Usually worse with weight bearing and particularly first thing in the morning or if you've been sitting for a long period of time and then your first step uh, will be very painful. And there aren't a lot of other associated symptoms. So you don't normally see swelling. You don't have numbness and tingling in your foot. But you may have a very tight calf and tight foot feeling foot. Asking for a friend, is the pain ever uh, displaced? So does it move like from certain areas to the heel? Or if you have a tear, you're feeling it where you actually have the, the micro tear? Most of the time you feel it right where the tear is. Okay. But it can move sort of into the inside of the foot. Does it ever move to sort of the ankle or on the back of the heel as opposed to the bottom of the heel? Generally doesn't go up the back. Okay. Um, See, I'm getting free medical advice here because this is the, obviously I'm asking about myself here uh-huh. because I have pain in the heel that it kind of moves around. It, it's in the ankle sometimes or sometimes it's at the bottom and and it's bad in the morning and it gets better as I as I go through the day. Hmm. But it's not it doesn't feel skeletal. It feels like something else. So I thought it was plantar fasciitis, but maybe it isn't. Well, the other things that I would think about when you have, it could be Achilles tendonitis. Yep. That's a little, it gets a little low onto the insertion of the Achilles tendon, but the fascia that really goes from the toes goes all the way up the back of your body. No, I know and, that. And, in, and includes the Achilles. Okay. But I would also think about a stress fracture. Sometimes we have stress fractures in the calcaneus or the heel bone, and they present as a heel pain, which people mistaken for plantar fasciitis because it is the most common cause of heel pain. Hmm. The other thing you th- need to think about is sometimes pain radiating from the back. And you, it, it's like if the nerve, the sciatic nerve is, is irritated and you're pinching just a specific portion of the nerve, you'll feel that pain in your heel. Really? It goes all the way down your leg to your heel? It goes all the way to your heel. So you can, and it can even skip the leg. So you yeah. just feel it down there in the heel. And so hmm. I've also found that people who have plantar fasciitis that are, have a difficult time in getting over it have some kind of back issue that needs to be addressed at the same time. That's interesting. Well, I don't really feel pain in my back and I haven't really done, you know, I was doing deadlifts. It's possible that I hurt my back and I didn't know it. We'll find out. So what are heel spurs and and how are they connected with plantar fasciitis? So a lot of times when you go to the doctor with plantar fasciitis, the doctor will do an Mm x-ray and they say, oh, I've got a heel spur. And immediately everybody thinks, oh, I've got a spur, got to get rid of the spur. Right. The spur has nothing to do with your plantar fasciitis. About 10% of the population actually has a heel spur, Mm -hmm. but it's very rare for people with heel spurs to actually have pain. What are heel spurs? It's uh, it's a growth of bone Mm -hmm. that is on the the bone called the calcaneus in the heel. Mm -hmm. And I think that they do develop probably from the plantar fascia pulling on the bone. And when the fascia pulls on the bone, it creates a stress reaction so that we make more bone. So we make a spur. So the spur is in response to the loading of the plantar fascia over time, but it isn't pathological. So the spur isn't a loose bone. It's actually connected to one of your bones. It's just sticking out perhaps in a way that makes everything uncomfortable, right? Exactly. Would that spur be manifest on the bottom of your heel or would it be sort of towards the sides of your heel? It's on the bottom of your heel and it's parallel to the plantar fascia. It actually is right where the insertion of the plantar fascia is. So it's if you imagine a rope that is attached to a wall and you tug on the rope, that plantar fascia, if it's the rope, every time it tugs on the bone, it sends a little signal that it's stressing that bone. And sometimes people will respond by making more bone at that attachment to try to strengthen where the fascia is attached to the bone. 
So that spur actually develops right at the insertion, and that's why a lot of people think that the spur is causing the plantar fasciitis. If we don't have plantar fasciitis, our doctor says we don't have it, and we take the x-ray and it, it isn't a bone spur, what else might cause pain in your foot? So we, we've covered, so you talked about back pain, mm-hmm. and then you mentioned also perhaps tendinitis, which might be what I'm suffering from. What else could it be? So the other thing it could be is a, a calcaneal stress fracture. So oh, okay. that's where you have a little fracture of the bone, and it's a stress fracture which accumulates slowly over time. So it's not like you fall and you have a your bone right, burst right. and have an acute fracture. This is just an overuse stress injury, which usually is on the inside of the heel. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of times we mistaken it for plantar fasciitis. Got it. And, then, and the final thing that you need to think about, and we wouldn't see this on an x-ray, but it's an entrapment syndrome. So there's nerves that go right behind the medial malleolus, so the little bump on your ankle. Mm-hmm. And the nerves can be entrapped, kind of like a, a carpal tunnel syndrome. Right. And so that can cause pain. Often you'll have a little bit of a numb or tingling sensation in your foot as well with that, but not necessarily. So with any of these, is there, is there going to be associated swelling? I would imagine with the tendonitis there might be. Exactly. With Achilles tendonitis, you often see thickening of the tendon and there may be actual swelling around the joint itself. But we rarely see swelling with plantar fasciitis on the bottom of the foot. Right. Are there risk factors associated with with plantar fasciitis? If you have it, is there something to be concerned about? It's really just an overuse phenomenon. So it's common in people who are up on their feet a lot, running, associated with work, maybe hard floors. And also people who have uh, not say, it's not an abnormal alignment of their foot necessarily, but someone with a really flat foot or someone with a high arch, they may be loading their plantar fascia slightly differently. So these are the people that I most commonly see plantar fasciitis in. Okay. Let's talk about what do you do if you have it? What are effective treatments? Can it be cured or are we just dealing with the pain management? Well, it absolutely can be cured. It's a matter of letting those little micro tears heal and remodel and recover. And the key is to sort of stay off your foot long enough to allow that micro injury to heal. But the problem is we're up on our feet all day long. And the type of people who get this injury are probably the more <laughs> active people, right? 100%. I've had it. And yeah. I've had it in both of my heels and it was torture. So what I did was, first of all, I the, the plantar fascia can be very short and tight. Mm-hmm. So you want to stretch it, you want to roll it, you want to try and lengthen it so that you take the pressure off the insertion. So the area that's kind of healed overnight or healed as you're resting that first step, you're not actually pulling on the repaired area and breaking it again. That's why those first steps can be torture. Right. You can ice it. I used to get a, a water bottle. I would freeze it, just put the water bottle on the floor, and I would roll my foot and kind of ice it and roll it at the same time. And then stretching your calf is important. Right. And I think that the most important thing really is to activate the intrinsic muscles in your feet. These are There's actually five layers of muscles in your feet. And getting those little tiny muscles turned on so that they can support the fascia. So that when you land, the muscles are contracting and taking the pressure off of the fascia. So that the fascia is not the only thing bearing the brunt of your load. is really, really important to the overall cure. So like, what sort of exercises are we talking about and how would people know how to do those exercises? Because it's your foot, right? It's not like you're not doing curls, right? So. You're, you're doing toe curls, believe it or not. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> Open your big mouth. All right. <laughs> you can pick up marbles with your toes. You can, okay. And it's actually learning how to put the weight on your foot so that it's evenly distributed across all of the metatarsal heads in your heel. Uh, you can scrunch a towel up on the floor. So there's little things that you can do to actually waken these muscles up. 
okay, are there any other tricks that, that you, tricks of the trade that you're willing to give away today? Well, actually, my cure for me when I right, had yeah. it, because I, I would have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. Yeah. I, would, I would actually crawl to my bathroom. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> then I would put about two or three inches of really warm water, like as hot as I could tolerate, in my tub. I would put my feet in there, and then I would do my stretching with the heat, and that would just loosen everything up. Then I'd get out of the tub and I'd do my little towel scrunches with my toes to right. activate my intrinsics and I would feel a lot better. But I think that when you're in the really acute stage, making sure you've got good footwear, mm-hmm. possibly orthotics, yep. just to take the pressure off of the fascia while it heals so that it gives you the opportunity to strengthen your muscles and loosen up the, the tissues is, uh, is a good bet. Okay, so we have a little bit of time. Like, if you have it and you're trying to fix it, how long is a reasonable amount of time to fix plantar fasciitis? Like, what what are our expectations reasonably? You know what? This is one of those horrible, horrible problems that can last six months to a year, sometimes two years. And if I ever get a little pain in my heel, I am all over it. Like, I really want to nip it in the bud. I don't ignore it. There's certain things you can kind of ignore and they'll go away quickly. This is one that if you get a pain in your heel... Get on your stretching, get on your icing, get on it quickly so that you don't end up with a year's worth of pain. There are some, you know, if you're really, really struggling, there's some other uh, treatments. Cortisone, I want you to really be very careful about cortisone injections. If you're going to go to somebody who's done a lot of them, if you get the injection and they inject the fat pad accidentally, there's a fat pad on your heel. Mm. Sometimes the fat pad will atrophy. And so then you lose your cushion for your heel, which is a really significant complication. But if you go to somebody who's experienced, you know, sports doctor, rheumatologist, someone who's doing injections all the time, cortisone, again, can buy you a window of opportunity to loosen it up, stretch it, activate your intrinsics. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure, as always, Jamie. That was Dr. Aaron Boynton. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Buston of The Tonic. If you enjoy The Tonic talk show and podcast, you'll love The Tonic newsletter. With links to the podcast and articles from the magazine, the newsletter will also let you know about upcoming health and wellness events, curated articles from across the internet that expand on the health and wellness topics important to you. There's contests and prizes and so much more. Best of all, it comes directly to you. To subscribe, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. The Tonic newsletter, you know, for what ails you. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Carolyn Tanner-Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years, and she has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. She teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. 
She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information, you can always visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm doing well. We're taking a humble ingredient today. Yes. And, and we're going to dissect it and dice it and smash it and mash it, right? Yes, absolutely, for sure. And oh. it's actually one of the most versatile ingredients out there. I love my potatoes. I love potatoes. Uh, me too. And, you know, we always say, like, don't eat so many potatoes. But at the end of the day, that's my go-to side dish. You know, potatoes in and of themselves are not unhealthy. The problem no. is... The way that we as North Americans eat them make them manifestly unhealthy, I think is the truth. Yeah, but you know, everything in moderation, right, Jamie? Yeah, truth. Okay, yeah. so let's start with what we're going to determine as the high starch potato. So which ones are those? Okay, so the high starch potato is something that we know as an Idaho potato or a baking potato. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's like the sort of rough looking outside, oval in shape something maybe you'd wrap in foil and put in the oven. Mm -hmm. It has a really, when you cook it, it has a very milky flavor as opposed to, you know, silky flavor or silky texture. It's high in starch, as we said, and it's really good for mashing. They don't need a lot of mashing to get a great texture for mashed potatoes, which means there's fewer starch granules that form, which will form a gluey texture. So I don't know if you've ever tried to mash a potato and you're not sure which one to use and you use the wrong one and it suddenly feels almost like glutinous or gluey, shall you say, you know, and I often will tell people like, don't try to mash potatoes in a food processor. That's not the right way. Well, the the French like their mashed potatoes almost gluey and gummy, right? Yeah, yes, but I think that's sort of like adding other things to it. But yeah, yeah, I mean, there definitely is a place for that. There's definitely a place for that as well. Speaking of mashed potatoes, if you've ever tried using a potato ricer, have you ever used one of those? I do. So, yeah, they're really great. Like, they kind of look like a garlic press on steroids. Yep. Okay. And they come with, you know, different circles that you could insert into the bottom, very fine, very coarse, and medium. And if you want to make it a little bit more rustic, you would go with the coarse and a little bit finer and more French you could use the the finer holes, which I really, really like. And what's lovely about a potato ricer is that you don't have to peel your potatoes before putting them into the ricer. You boil them, and I'm going to give you a little boiling tip, yep. and then you let them cool a bit, and then you put them through the ricer, and then you would add your extra ingredients. Okay. Is that the tip? The, no, method all? the tip. No, no, Jamie. I'm always better with my tips okay, than that. I, okay, I was going to say, but go yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to give you two tips, okay? So yeah. first of all, the global tip of all potatoes is you always start cooking your potatoes. If you're cooking them in water, you always start cooking them in cold water. Yes, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you never, like, boil water as you would pasta and then throw your potato in because what that does is it cooks the potato on the exterior before the interior, making for a very shaggy exterior, which isn't always a bad thing, and we will go there later, but for the most part, you cook them starting in cold water. Now, when you want to make mashed potatoes, you cook those russets or the Idaho's. We call them russets here in Canada. Yep. You cook those whole in their skin. And then when they're finished cooking, you test them with a knife. You pierce them with a knife, not a fork, to test them. 
then you let them cool in their skins so they actually steam on the inside a little bit. And then you put them through the ricer, or you could peel them if you don't have a ricer and mash them with a potato masher. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I actually, I go with the medium starch potatoes for my mashed. I love the Yukon Golds for okay. that. So I, that's just me. That's what I do. I also start them in cold water, plenty of salt, but I make sure they're uniform size. Because that way, if one is ready, they're all ready. And you don't have that situation where it's hard in the middle and and some aren't. But that's my little tip. And then do you cook them with the skin on and then peel them and mash them? No, I I take the skin off. So so I I take the skin off and I get them in the cold water so they don't blacken, you know, if if you're going to do it right away. And then that always works for me. But I'm old school. I use the masher. I don't use the ricer. Well, try using a starch next time, like an Idaho or a russet. And try cooking or not, but try cooking them with skin on if your ultimate goal is mashed potatoes because the steaming in the skin really makes for a nice texture. I make a lot of nudie, which is like gnocchi, but yeah. it has yeah, yeah. Uh, ricotta cheese in it. So technically, you're supposed to use a high starch potato like yeah. a russet or an Idaho. Yeah. But sometimes I run out or I don't have, and I have used a Yukon. Yeah. I cook it in the same way. Yeah. And i got to tell you, I like the flavor better, just as you started saying about the French, and they like it kind of gluey. I kind of like that gluiness in the nudie, but it's much harder to work with because it's stickier. Yeah, I agree. Right. If I'm making the, gnocchi, the potato gnocchi, I would use the baked potatoes. The other thing I like is, and this is sort of akin to the to the to the mashed potatoes, is I use the baking potatoes for twice baked potatoes. Mm. so that you're kind of mashing them. Maybe you're putting in bacon or green onions or even I've done it with kale and mushrooms and gruyere and then you rebake them a second time and that is the bomb. Like you open them up do your stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Love it, love it. You know, another, and I'm totally digressing here and I know we want to talk about it. No, we're all about the digression here. Go ahead. Okay, good. So another thing I really like and I shouldn't get into the other vegetables but you could do this with all root vegetables but let's just talk about potatoes. You cook them in their skin in the oven on a bed of salt. So I buy cheap salt for this. I'm not using like my expensive kosher or my expensive sea. I just go to the bulk store and buy cheap salt and I make little sort of hills or puddles of salt and I place the potatoes on top of the salt as opposed to wrapping them in foil in the salt. And the salt imparts an amazing flavor into the potato without adding salt, so to speak. And it also acts as an amazing heat conductor. So the potatoes cook even better and faster. And you could do the same thing with beets or with squash or anything that you leave the peel on because you will want to take the peel off after. Great advice. Yeah. I want to circle back to Yukons, which are my go-to potato. Yeah, circle back to them. Roasted potatoes, I actually don't think they can be topped. I think they are the best for roasting. I agree. But first of all, did you know that Yukon potatoes were genetically cultivated in Canada? Down the street in Guelph. Yeah. So it's an awesome thing, A. So let's go to, yeah, Yukon potatoes. So I'm going to now go against everything I just said if yep. you want to make roasted potatoes. Okay? Yep. So what I like to do is I peel the potatoes. I peel them as I'm bringing a pot of water to boil the salt, okay? Mm-hmm. And then I cut the pieces of potato to the desired size that I will eventually want to roast the potatoes. Mm-hmm. And I cook those pieces of potatoes in the boiled salted water. Yep. So I just said earlier that we always put potatoes in cold water. But if you want to get that shaggy, extra crispy exterior, yeah. so take your Yukon, peel them, cut them, put them in the boiling water, cook them for five minutes, 
yeah. the pieces, okay? Drain them and then put them into a bowl. Like I usually use a metal, like a tin bowl, just because it's light. And I aggressively shake the potatoes in the bowl when they're five-minute cooked, okay? Yeah. And what that does is it takes the already shaggy exterior and makes it even rougher and shaggier, okay? Then I empty them onto a parchment-lined cookie sheet, and I oil them and roast them. And what happens is, you ever like those French fries that have that coated exterior? Yep. I do. So it makes the roasted potatoes have that shaggy, extra crispy exterior, as opposed to a smooth finish, which doesn't allow for a great crisp when there's all kinds of bumps get a crispier exterior. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I do parboil my potatoes if I'm making crispy roast p- potatoes. Yeah. I don't if, sometimes I'll cook them with a whole chicken and yeah. let the chicken juices meld with the mm. roast potatoes. And let me tell you, that is also the bomb. And then you- That's really good. For, for the last 10 minutes of cooking, I'll throw in green onions because you can't Ooh. have them in too early. And uh, yeah, pretty delicious. Oh, let's say. talk about that for a second. Mm-hmm. You just reminded me of something that's not in my already brain notes. So green onion, potatoes, yep. sour cream, love it all, right? Mm-hmm. You could take Yukons or the little ones, the little Yukons, mm-hmm. and, and boil them. Boil them till they're fully cooked and start them in cold water, this one. And smash them, yep. so wait till they're cooled a bit, smash them with the heel of your hand. Some people use the bottom of a glass, but I don't get a, a good enough smash, okay? I like when it sort of smashes and breaks. And then make a mixture of sour cream, green onion, salt, pepper, garlic if you want, and smear that on your smashed potatoes. And now you have sour cream and onion baked uh, smashed potatoes. They're so good. Excellent idea. All right. So the other potatoes that exist are what we sometimes call new potatoes, and they tend to be waxier. What's their usage, and and where would you go with them real quick? So the purple potatoes or the low-starch white or red or fingerling, which are my favorite baby potatoes, they're thin-skinned. They don't require peeling. You could eat the skin. They're great for roasting, boiling, and especially using in a cold salad. If you're thinking like a summer barbecue potato salad, they're perfect. They're, or a Niswa salad, they absorb salad dressing really nicely, and they're not good for um, mashing. So definitely use them when you want to eat a potato that holds their shape well, but they get sweeter as they get cooked. So cook them in a lower oven, and sweet potatoes are the same. Excellent advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're so welcome. It's great chatting. What do you want to talk about next time you're on? Let's talk about cleaning because we're getting into that, but like specifically stuff in your kitchen. Excellent. That was Carolyn Tanner Cohen. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of the Tonic Magazine. 
The Tonic is published six times a year and is delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. It's also available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. And if you miss it, you can also read The Tonic online at thetonic.ca. Hey, if you like The Tonic Talk Show, I know you'll love The Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed. She's passionate about the connection between human health and nature and believes that regenerative gardens can help create food security and broaden ecological diversity. Melissa has been featured on Farmer's Footprint in Toronto Life, has been a guest speaker at Allen Gardens, and has been a well-received garden expert online and in person. And for more information, you can always visit thegoodseedto.com. Welcome back to the show, Melissa. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me again. So I have a problem. I think we may have talked about it before. And that is I have a black walnut in my backyard. And for those of you who don't know, they grow quickly, massively, and they can take over your entire backyard, but they throw tons of shade. And what are some of the challenges? I know what they are, but what are some of the challenges of growing a garden in the shade? Well, this is one of the top questions I get as a master gardener. And, you know, shady areas have gotten a bit of a bad rep because for most of us, they represent an area where many, many plants simply don't thrive. So while, of course, it's possible to plant your favorite rosebush, for instance, in a shady or partially shady area, it might survive. But our question is, is it going to thrive? Right. So the same can be also said with the edible garden, right? Prized crops that you like to grow, like tomatoes, simply prefer to grow in full sun and will produce better harvest in ideal conditions. And I would add that shady areas can also represent spaces where there is competition for nutrients from root growth, from other plants and trees and shrubs that can be present. So... There's a lot going on. There is a lot going on that you have to consider. And it's interesting, you know, some of my my raised gardens are both in the sun and in the shade. And I've kind of learned which vegetables I can put in the full sun. And of course, as you mentioned, tomatoes have to be in the full sun. But I, what was interesting to me is some of the lettuces and greens actually do better when there's a little bit of shade, right? Definitely. So what is considered shade in terms of sunlight? Does it mean like you never get sun or is it a few hours of sun? What does it actually mean? Yeah, this is an important question because we hear these terms thrown around, but really, what do they mean, right? Yeah. So, full sun is considered six plus hours of direct sun. Mm-hmm. Partial shade is considered three to six hours of sun, and shade is considered three hours or less of direct sunlight. So, in urban gardens especially, there are lots of reasons that we might have a shaded garden. Right. We live closely together, so physical barriers like walls and fences, they tend to create shaded gardens. And your garden might get mostly morning sun and receive filtered or indirect sunlight for the rest of the day. And then, just like you mentioned off the top of the show, shaded areas can also be sort of the understory of larger trees and shrubs. And those can be areas where you want to add some plant material, as we've talked about. Right. Okay. So if you have a shade garden or one that just doesn't get the same sunlight as partially shaded or or direct sunlight, does that mean you're relegated to growing hostas or is there other solutions? I mean, it seems that way, doesn't it? It certainly does. (laughs) That's a great question. Okay. So I think we all default to our creature comforts when it comes to planting in shady areas. And we really, really do see a lot of hostas in shade gardens because they grow really large 
They don't really have a lot of predators besides slugs, and they seem to sort of fill in those very difficult and problematic areas of the garden. So one of the best things you can do when visiting a garden center or a plant nursery is to be prepared when you go shopping for your shade plants. Yeah. So I want you to figure out the size of the area that you need to plant and be sure to note, is that space full or partial shade? And often, you know, garden centers are going to group plants by their light needs. And all of those perennials that you're going to buy do have those tags, right, on the yeah. back of them. or And, and they're going to tell you the light requirements. So you're definitely not relegated to hostas only, but it does take some creativity and a little bit of effort to move beyond the hosta. Yeah, and I think you have to be prepared for low-growing plants, right? Like, whatever it is you're getting, it's not, like, are there plants that flower and, and grow tall in the shade? Because I don't know them. Sure, that's a great question. So let's look at some perennial plants, for instance. Sure. So definitely, you could swap a hosta for a fern. Yep. And I think ferns are really, really a fantastic choice for gardens. They look really great. Something else, if you're looking for a little bit of color, you could look at a bleeding heart. And those come with sort of fuchsia or white flowers in the spring if you need that hit of color at the start of the season. Hellebores, which are also called Lenten roses, are great. And then you just mentioned height. And Solomon's seal is actually a beautiful early blooming uh, plant that can give you that height, as is a stilby. Okay, I'll have to look for those two because I actually... With my black walnut in the back, there are actually there's a fair bit of area that I need to cover, and I, there's only so many hostas you can have. So it's true. I think you can also look at some really interesting ground cover, mm-hmm. and one of my favorites is called sweet woodruff, and so it actually produces these really pretty white little flowers. Uh, you can make tea from it, and it looks, I think, very whimsical. Yep. Um, yeah. And it proliferates. I actually have some, I have these wild black raspberries that grow and it actually <laughs> keeps the raspberries from spreading out where they are. It's like a little carpet of white at the beginning of the season. It's gorgeous. Yeah. But, but they're hardy and they work. And Creeping Jenny seems to do well in the shade too, I find. It does. It does. And again, it's really for me, it's playing with some of those tones. Yeah. If you're looking for native species for North America, things like bloodroot, foam flower, there's giant yellow hyssop. Snake root, all of those will also do well in the shade. Okay, so let's move on to annuals. Are there annuals that do well in the shade? Yes. Personal favorite, just because I get to express that, (laughs) uh, wax begonias. I like to plant them in pots so they trail over the side. They come in beautiful pale shades, and the variety that I like the most is called angelique hanging begonia. It's just a stunning pale white and pink. That being said, coleus does well in the shade, as do fuchsia, and then, of course, the traditional impatiens. Mm-hmm. And impatiens are easy to find, and they seem to proliferate in our temperature, too, right? Right, and you can change your color palette year after year with them just because they are annual. Yes, just don't be impatient with them. Um, <laughs> sorry, I can, that's terrible. We can edit that out. Maybe we'll edit that out. Maybe we won't. I don't know. Okay, so I alluded to actually managing to get some greens to grow in the shade. Uh, what do you recommend for for partial shade or shade if we're trying to grow some vegetables, some, some edibles. We're knocking it out of the park here. So Aren't I? I kind of I I know my stuff. There you go. You do. I like that about you. So for perennial edibles, you mentioned one of them, black raspberries, they do well in the shade. The other one is alpine strawberries, which are also a great ground cover. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about greens in shadier spaces. So lettuce, spinach, mustard greens, arugula, all of these are going to thrive in a sunnier condition in the spring when the tree leaves above have not fully come in. 
And then they're going to appreciate the shade as the temperatures rise in late spring and into early summer. And then, of course, herbs also, most of them anyway, do have a good amount of tolerance for partial shade. I would say except for basil. That's the only one that seems to mess me up in the partial shade. Depends on temperature. Okay, maybe that's the issue. Yeah. I find the kale does reasonably well in partial shade, too. I don't know why, but my kale seems to do okay without getting the direct sunlight. I like it. And, you know, kale, you can put it in in the spring, and it keeps going past the last frost. Like, it's a hard worker in the garden. Everyone should have it. Yeah, and it goes in my minestrone, so, you know, there you go. Okay, so what are... We've talked about the challenges of growing in a shadier garden, but are there benefits? a great question and I want to I'm going to add a personal story here. So sure. I actually worked with a landscape architect in Toronto to create a shaded back garden for my home. Mm. So I have a partner who strongly dislikes being out in direct sun mm-hmm. and I have a host of little kids who never like to keep their hats on. Mm-hmm. So having a beautiful shaded space sort of adjacent to our kitchen allows the kids to go in and out without me worrying about slathering sunscreen on them. It allows us to eat our meals outdoors in the summer, in the heat of the summer, without getting a ton of direct sunlight. And so I think that, you know, a shaded garden does have benefits. Another thing is that I think a shaded garden can also be a great place to observe wildlife in your outdoor space. Because some critters really like to take refuge from that midday sun and be in more temperate shaded spaces. Is it easier to maintain soil moisture in the shade as well? Or in summer, does that really not make a difference? That's a great question. It's definitely easier when you do not have the direct sun on the soil. I would still say that having a cover crop like we talked about, like the sweet woodruff or the creeping jenny, is going to help, one, prevent weeds, two, prevent compaction, and three, help retain that moisture in the soil because there's less erosion happening. If our listeners were interested in some of the species that you talked about or just getting some advice, how should they reach out to you? That's wonderful. Definitely uh, send me an email. It's easy to get a hold of me. It's Melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A, at thegoodseedto.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for some shady chat. (laughs) We're throwing shade today. That was Melissa Cameron. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Dr. Aaron Boynton, Carolyn Tanner-Cohen, and Melissa Cameron. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The March-April issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you are interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Boston wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.